Don't Ask the Dog How to Play. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This leads us to our guest today, Frank Franchins. Coach Franchins is a movement coach and the author of a book I just finished up, Exuberant Animal, The Power of Health, Play, and Joyful Movement. If you've been following me at all on social media, I've been posting a lot of coaches, uh, screenshots of coaches' book, and I've just been totally engaged with coaches' thought process and approach to the world of movements and how we can take some of these thoughts of play movements with the general population and apply it to the world of sports performance, where we're seeing such a high rate of burnout, such a high rate of injuries. And I feel like we're not reaching the pinnacle of performance that we could reach. And Coach offers a lot of solutions and a different way of looking at the human body, a different perspective on what we should really be looking at, what we should really be studying and how we can really get the most out of this field, how we can really get the most of our out of our sessions and how we can get the most out of us as coaches, uh, not approaching it in such a closed minded and boxed way, but really opening our brains up to what could really happen. So thank you guys for listening. Hopefully you guys get something out of this. All right, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Great to be here, man. Do you want to tell the listeners kind of a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got to the point you're at today and the, the journey that took you there? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to share that. And it, it's it's a little bit unusual, I suppose. I was a really sick little kid. I, I was not able to keep up with my, with my friends athletically at all. I had some digestive immune problems that plagued me until high school at which time I got involved in swimming and water polo and the exercise really just dramatically changed my life. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I was, I was up with everybody else. So that really turned me on to the potential for movement and what it could do for me. And this was California in the 1970s and Bruce Lee was really popular back then. And I got involved in martial arts. And I was really excited about that. And I started training at the dojo every night. And about the same time, of course, growing up in California, I had been to Yosemite and I'd seen the climbing scene there. And I got involved in climbing little by little. And that was also a big part of my training and my life. So those were like my two athletic interests. And at the same time, I was um, an undergraduate and I studied human biology and I had some professors who were really excited about human evolution. And that's what got me turned on because I, I realized that when I was going to the dojo and studying the body, and then I was going to school during the day, studying the body from a different perspective. And those two things really came together for me. My professor said, if you want to learn about the body, if you really want to understand the human body, you have to go to Africa. And so I did. And that really turned me on. And those things coming together gave me the perspective that I have today on training and sports and the whole thing. Yeah. When you mentioned in your book, uh, if you're a lover of the body, you have to visit Africa. I was like, well, there we go. Like now I'm stuck. <laughs> now I got to go visit Africa. I got to go check it out. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that, that is such an eye opener because you go there and you can see the animals, but most importantly, you can see the habitat and you can run these thought experiments like what would it take to survive in this kind of setting, this kind of environment? And you realize that our conventional sports don't really speak to that very much because when you want to succeed in habitat, it's much more than athletic function and performance. You have to have a good sensory system and you have to have a good tribal system to help you understand habitat. And so it's a very three-dimensional holistic challenge that people have in that kind of setting. So that, that really opened my mind quite a bit as well. And that was the, I think it was Austin Einhorn we had on this podcast, but he came on and he he's big into the evolutionary approach to training too. And he looks at it and he's like, in the sports world, if you get hurt, you accept it. We talk about rehab, we talk about all these things. And he's like, in the, the natural world, if you got hurt, <laughs> you died or your family didn't eat that day, you know, like it's much bigger consequence. And there's just a different kind of connection to what movement is, to what your body is and what that kind of means 
to the tribe, to, to the community. Right. And, and the other dimension on that is the idea of resting when you're injured. <laughs> I mean, this is, um, this is one book that I'm going to recommend to you and your audience. It's called the Paleolithic Prescription. It's no longer in print, but what they did, they, they went to these anthropologists, went to Africa and they studied some of the uh, San Bushmen. And they realized that these people would have what they call a paleolithic rhythm, which is they go out and they hunt and the hunt is arduous. It's, it's strenuous. They beat up their bodies a little bit and they're out for a day or two or three. And then they come back to camp and they rest for two or three or four days, whatever it is. And they, they have this rhythm. And if they get hurt, they come back to camp and they rest. And there's no compulsion that they have to get back in the game right away. So it's a, it's much more of a natural organic uh, rhythm that they follow. Well, and, and mentioning that too, cause you talk about a little bit in your book, um, but like the rest is probably actual rest too. It's not where their phone is constantly striking them with uh, little stressors, you know, just constantly. Like, I, I just feel like a lot of times in our, in our society today, it's like, we never actually have rest other than when we're sleeping, we have zero access to like our technology. Right, right. I had a, uh, a rock climbing teacher once and his idea, he was a great trainer and his, his general principle was when you're training, train really hard. And when you're resting, rest really deep. And that's, that's what we call a high contrast lifestyle. And that's the formula. We know what it is, <laughs> but we, if we, even if we don't follow it. And I, I'm, I'm interested selfishly a little bit here in when, when you visit Africa and you're, you're looking at your martial arts background and your interest in the human body, how you took all these ideas and the things that you wanted to do and how you turned it into like writing and turned it into a book and turned it into your own thoughts. What was that kind of journey like for you? Oh, it was, it was pretty difficult. I am not trained as a writer. It was just something that I felt really passionate about and I wanted to get down on paper and I didn't see other people making these connections. So I said, well, I'm going to try and make these connections. And it's it's been quite a journey to learn how how to write these books, but um, but I've I've made some progress on that. And it's um, you try out ideas, and sometimes they fly, sometimes they connect, and other times they don't. So you have to triage your work a little bit that way. So it's it's a good challenge. And and when when you were putting out these ideas, uh, did you have any like backlash? Because uh, it seems like a lot of the ideas kind of challenge. And not so much in a challenge of like, you're trying to start a fight, but it's like, it just goes against the natural, like what you're taught in like a CSCS or an exercise science course of like, we're sets and reps, biomechanics, like uh, there's one answer. We are the experts. We know everything about the body. We have all the answers. And then you come out with your ideas like, wait, wait a minute. Like, do we know, you know, like, is that the answer? Did you have any backlash with that? Like, what was kind of that journey like? I wouldn't say backlash exactly, but a lot of uh, what I've said has kind of fallen on deaf ears because I, I've been very interested in animal play behavior. And I think play is a real important part of animal development for all mammals, including people. And I became this advocate for play and people don't know quite what to do with that. And it's even, it's even tougher when you advertise or market or brand your stuff as play based, because when you do that, it, there's this feeling that play is trivial, play is for kids, play is not really important. And so you have to really make a case for that. And it's tough. I mean, you have to bring up the science, you have to talk about uh, play in non-human animals, you have to talk about play deprivation, that that's something that you can test in the laboratory. When you deprive animals of play, they grow up with uh, very serious social deficits. And so you have to bring these these ideas in. And it's still kind of an uphill fight because as adults, we try and be really sophisticated, you know. <laughs> Well, and that's, uh, I mean, everything you just, any of the listeners know, like everything you just mentioned is something that I talk about like consistently because that's something like I noticed with my athletes, I talked about, called it the zombie apocalypse a little bit, but it's like the disconnection and, and like every part of their day is planned out, you know, like every single part of their day is controlled, planned out the safety, the cautious kind of route of, of their brains is used and they never really have the chance to play. You know, like you talk about play deprivation and a lot of the issues that come with that. And in the sports performance world, I, I have athletes that come in and if I write everything up, like this is what we're doing. It's just another part of their day that is kind of planned for them. And now it's like, 
I really liked your, you had a point in the book. You said something like, give them, give us rocks, sticks, and like, we'll figure out what to do with it. And that's exactly, I love yeah. that you mentioned that. Cause that's, I tell my, like, I, I lay out something, I give them something for the day. Like maybe it's a PVC fight. Maybe it's a ball. Maybe it's like, all right, now figure out what to do with this for five to 10 minutes. Like that, that, that's the start of every single one of our workouts is some creative, we, we call it like our, our warm up just to make, make sense. But that's all it is, is play. Like we give them a stick, we give them a ball, we give them something yeah. to play and warm up with. And the, the amount of movements that you see that you would never see if I were to program it, like the one foot landings, two foot landings, the catch in awkward positions, the falls, like I would, I could never possibly program that if you're just looking at it in a movement perspective, but then also like the psychological benefits you, you see the athletes are confident, they're happy, they're, they're smiling and joking and they're competitive with each other. And you could never get that out of something that you tried to force and program. Right. And this reminds me of a distinction made by, um, coach Steve Merlin, um, who I really recommend that you talk to when you can, he makes a distinction between adapted and adaptable athletes. And what happens when we, when we have these regimented training programs that we produce these athletes who are highly adapted to a certain set of circumstances, and they can function really well in that set of circumstances. But if things change at all, then they're stuck. So he puts the emphasis on making his athletes adaptable, and that means giving them these novel play-based challenges. And it, it really makes a lot of sense. Well, and that's, that's something that we talk about a lot too on this podcast is we like the adapted athlete because it looks pretty in our training session. You know, like yep. it, it's almost like as a coach, it gives us that little ego boost and that little like pat on the back, like all your training sessions are great. Everything's happening. But then when they leave your training session, what, like, what are they going to be put in those perfect movement patterns? Are they going to be put in everything and it looks great? You get them on the field, you get them on the, into life, you know, like, are they adapt? you know, do they have that ability to adapt? And that's where you start to implement these play-based things and it stops looking pretty in your training. You know, like you're training, if somebody were to walk in, they'd be like, whoa, like what is happening here? People are falling, people are pushing each other. Like what is happening here? But then you look at what they're required to do in their sport, what they're required to do in life. And you're like, oh, that, that makes sense. It's not pretty. It shouldn't be pretty. Right. And this reminds me, I like going back in history. And I go back to uh, one of my favorite athletes was uh, Jim Thorpe. And he's widely regarded as one of the great athletes of the you know, early 20th century because he was able to excel at a lot of different sports. And I read a book about Jim Thorpe, and I realized that his training was not that regimented. It was very seasonal. And he actually spent a lot of time on a farm riding horses and chopping wood and doing functional activities. And then he would go in and train. And he was, he was a pretty playful person as well. So he was able to excel at a lot of these different things. And he, he was kind of a model for us in that way. And something I love that you, you talk about in the play aspects that I feel like it is kind of overlooked a lot. And you, you mentioned it a lot in your book, uh, uh, kind of the, the, the spiritual and mental side to the body. And I feel like a lot of times we try to look at the body as a body, you know, like we try to what, what we can see the, the, uh, the muscles, the tendons, the leg, like everything, like, because we can break it down and it makes us feel like experts and it makes us feel like we understand, but you, you really dive into the spiritual and whole body approach and the belief in what we're doing and the belief behind what we're doing. Can you kind of explain where those thoughts have come from and what that really means for the athlete or for the person that you're working with? Right. Well, the, the one insight I kept coming up with in my studies of the body was just how big it really is. I mean, how vast the body is. If you just look at, say, the nervous system alone or the immune system alone, you could study that for your entire life and still not plumb the whole thing. And the body is vast. And the body co-evolved in habitat, so it's massively connected to the world. And that, that's the way we know the world. So it's it's tempting to take a scientific mechanical approach and break it down one muscle at a time, one joint at a time. And that can be worthwhile doing, but it's so much bigger than any one person or any one discipline really can even get their head around. So it's, uh, it's awesome in a very real way. The body is awesome. And where did you, like, where did you start to, was it looking at other animals play and start to understand, like, where did you start to get that kind of thought process that it is bigger than what we think it really is? 
in high school, you typically don't study big history, study small history of, say, the United States or whatever it is, Western Europe. That, that's pretty typical in, in high school. And then in college, now all of a sudden you get to learn big history and big history, of course, meaning um, millennia. And you look at big human history and the fact that we've got 300,000 years as homo sapiens, immense amount of times, six million years as uh, bipedal chimps, if you will. So when you look at that big history, it forces you to look at the body in a different context, in a different way. And then you start thinking about your your cousins, <laughs> your chimpanzee cousins, your mammalian cousins, your other animals that are highly related to you. And you look at, okay, what, what's consistent about this? And when I was in Africa, I was lucky because I was able to go out to Gambi to see the chimpanzees. And that blew me away because chimps in the wild are fearsome athletes. They are just, I mean, they're, they're incredibly dangerous. They won't, the, the safari guides will not let you go into the jungle without a guide and a gun. You have to be protected from the chimps. They're that strong. And they don't do any training. There, there are no coaches in the chimpanzee world. You know, there's nobody with a clipboard or a spreadsheet. There's none of that. And you start to realize, wow, these are our closest relatives in the animal world. And yet uh, they don't do, they, their bodies are developed through play and hunting and exploration and sex and the, all the normal things. So why shouldn't that work for us as well? And even, even the case with my dog, my dog is a phenomenal athlete and he won't do a training program at all. He won't listen to my spreadsheet talk. He won't listen to my clipboard stuff. He just wants to play and have fun. And, and so why is he such a great athlete? So then, then this is something I love. I, I geek, I geek out about looking at other animals, like, like you mentioned, and just seeing what is happening there. How, how in the world of sports performance, of the American football world, how do we start to implement in your like in your way? How do we start to implement some of these tactics and thought processes to create better athletes? You know, like I feel like we we have such a system that we think we know the answers. We think these sets and reps are gonna. If, if we just look at the end goal of we, our goal is to create healthy humans and better athletes in our sport. How can we take some of these thought processes and start to implement them into what we are doing? Yeah. And that's tricky. It depends what you mean by better athletes, because if you are only interested in performance and winning games, we kind of know how to do that already. But if you're looking at the whole person and you're looking at, say, their longevity across a career or their ability to function in other domains off the field, then, then you start to incorporate some of these other things and you start to look at human evolution. Okay, what, what does, Vern Gambetta often talks about building a better biped. And that, when he, came up with that phrase, I was immediately interested. I said, okay, that's that's what I'm interested in. And so that's where he starts with the human animal, build a better biped. And when you do that, then that's naturally going to carry over into sports performance. So start at the beginning and especially in children's physical education. I think we're way too premature in starting with sports training with kids because uh, they, they need the fundamentals first, which build a better biped in elementary school. And then later on, come in with the sports performance. Well, that, that, that foundation that you mentioned is something that in the college sector is like brutally missing right now. And it's something that I, I like, I view almost like what I do with my college athletes. And I, I mention this all the time, but like I'll have athletes come in here that squat like 600 pounds and they can't do a cartwheel. Like they can't crawl, you know, like they can't do something that you would ask a kid to do a, a, a well, like moving kid. And I don't know about an average kid, but uh, nowadays, but right. you would ask a kid to do, and he'd be able to crank out a cartwheel. Like we should have no problem with these things. And I feel like we, we've skipped a lot of steps and you, you would talk about the, the kind of angle, the multi, like the, the whole, the whole long-term athletic career. And with our athletes, like we're, we're missing that, that foundational piece. And I feel like now as a, as a coach working with these 22 year old athletes that have phenomenal output and just no ability to control it. Now I'm going back to almost the children physical education route to kind of teach them some of these things. Right. Um, while my friend Steve Merlin has often remarked about how his athletes seem 
uh, almost incompetent in terms of their bipedal locomotion. A lot of kids now come into his sporting programs. They don't know how to skip. They never learn how to skip. And he's astonished by this because that should be a fundamental locomotion pattern that every child should learn at some point. So, yeah, absolutely. What you're observing is correct. Or, or the, the the skip. Uh, so we've I had this discussion with Jeremy Frisch because we'll have either they don't like they have no idea how to, or they skip like a robot. You know, <laughs> like it's a it's the most robotic um, skip I've ever seen. And it's saying it kind of transitions into like a lot of their running and other movements. It's like the the athlete. And this is something that then why I enjoyed your book and your thought process so much is the athlete has been taught how to move, you know, like, it, like this is how you move. And you, like you talked about, like if you, the chimps, like they were not taught how to move. They observed and they moved and they've played and they understood it that way. And it's, I just feel like it's such a different learning process of how we need to start to kind of teach our athletes and just humans. I, I say athletes, but it's, I think it's a, I think we'd have we'd have a lot more athletes if we just taught it to every human of I mean ta- not taught but started to implement play and movement based activities in our everyday life so we kind of learn it that way. Right, and one really exciting discovery in the world of neuroscience um, is relevant here because what we've discovered are these neuro- mirror neuron systems in the brain, which apparently help us respond to observed movement in other people. So that's how we learn to move, is watching other people move. We don't learn through uh, a didactic or instructional model. We learn by watching other people. And this is how dancers learn. This is how children used to learn how to move, watching other good movers. And that's, you hardly even need any language at all, really. I mean, that's how chimps do it. They watch other chimps and it works. And then we're trying to, so we, I'm interested in your, so let's say, and I, I kind of want to put you in my shoes. You, you have this American football team uh, and I know you, you want to, you kind of want to fight a little bit against the sports realm of things. So it's not so sp- specific and we're, we're leading to not better humans, but let's say you, you have this American football team. What is your, how would you go about training them? How would you go about kind of implementing some of these things, but keeping in the, the, the said principle to where we're still getting results, but we're not having injured athletes. Cause I really believe, I really believe there is a way to implement these things to where we get better results. I, I don't think we're at the pinnacle anywhere near. I think we got so far away from our natural human movements that now we're actually seeing it hurt ourselves on the field because we are so specific. And I think it does hurt the win loss column as well as the, the human. I think we're lose, lose. So if you were to have this American football team, like what are some of the things that you would implement right away to work with these athletes? Well, I think I take a real big advantage of the preseason and use that as the most playful time possible because you st- there's still the realities, you know, people need to do strength training and I would take advantage of the experts who are, are really good at that, but really use the preseason and make it as playful as possible. And that, that could go a long way, I think toward, uh, you know, building diversity, give them more creative um, experiences on the field. And their bodies will remember that as they go into games. So... And when, when you're, when you're going about, and this is a question (laughs) I'm interested in your answer because I get this question a lot is how do you go about creating those playful experiences? What is your process? Cause I know you mentioned in your book when, uh, basically when a coach starts watching, like it stops becoming that playful experience. Like how, how do you, how do you balance the, like being the coach and setting them up because they're not getting the playful experience in their everyday life. Like they used to thousands of years ago where they would just play now like how do you balance setting something setting a playful experience up without it being turning into the the drill you know turning into the coach aspect right well what really did it for me was my first experience with a medicine ball because i went to a workshop and this was when uh, paul check was really starting to push the medicine ball training and he had some real specific things that you were supposed to do with the medicine ball and it occurred to me it's like no let's just pretend we're chimps and (laughs) throw the medicine ball out there and see what people come up with. And the medicine ball being of a good substantial weight, you're going to get some training effect no matter what you do. So put the balls out on the field, give some guys some time and say, go for it. 
show me some patterns, you know, give me some novelty here and see what you come up with and trust them to do that. And, and I think they will make some games. And when you're, um, when you're going about this coaching process, like what, what, cause this is a question I get a lot. Like, what is your approach? Like, are you putting yourself in these games and just playing it with them? Are you uh, nudging in the right direction in quotations, right direction? Like, how are you going about, even with your workshops that I've seen you do, like, how are you going about being the coach in that situation? Are you coaching words? Like, are you moving uh, just, all right, we're done with the balls. Now we're going to go to the sticks. Like how are, how are you personally doing that? Yeah. I try and set up open-ended experiences um, where I say, here are some examples of the, what I would do with this medicine ball in this situation, but I would make it really clear that that's only a suggestion and that you go ahead and create what you want to create. And as long as you're not doing something wildly dysfunctional with the ball, then it's, it's going to be okay. And that tends to work. I mean, that's where I've gotten most of my games is from other people in my workshops, making them up. And I just steal them. <laughs> it works that way. Yeah. And I've got a library of that stuff now. I love that. You, I, I love that you mentioned that because I mean, that's exactly everybody asks, like, how, how'd you come up with that? How'd you come up? I was like, I didn't come up with anything. I like, I, all I did was put something out there and tell the athletes like, Hey, get to work. And then they did it. And then I'm like, all right, I'm definitely, like you said, like, I'm definitely stealing that from you. I'll, I'll give you credit. But I'm like that, that's a sweet game. Like that's where I think we miss it. Like we always want, like, like a little bit of that library, we want it laid out in front of us. It's like, man, there's no way one person by themselves comes up with everything like that. It's the, it's the creative environment that you create as a coach that organically comes up with these ideas that you would never organically do by yourself, you know? Right, right. It's creating that setting. It's creating that environment. I'll give you one example. We always have medicine balls around and we have hula hoops around. And I didn't think this up, but somebody in one of my classes said, well, what if we hold the hula hoop up high and have people do slam dunks with the medicine ball through the hula hoop? I'm going, yeah, that's perfect. That's great. <laughs> and so we end up doing the game and then realizing that it's phenomenal core conditioning and it's phenomenally challenging. And you can adjust the height of the hoop depending on who you're working with. You can change the ball. You can, um, there's a million variations on it. And it was, it just started as play. And then it became something much more substantial. Well, so. and that's something that I, I you, you mentioned, like there's millions of variations of it. And that's like every single, like we, I have coaches reach out and ask about like, well, like what am I going to do with that game? Like how it was like, once you do it and you just uh, like allow the athlete to change. And that's, that, that's where you, like you had like two very, like you had the ball and you had the height of the hoop, you know, like those are two that you could change the weight. Like the amount of variations, you could literally do that if you wanted to, that same exact drill for a week straight. And you would never once do the same drill, you know, like a state drill, but same play um, game. And you could never once have the same drill. Like we, we do something, we call it box parkour and we just set up a, a, an obstacle in the way and the athlete has to get over it a different way. And the amount of variations that the athletes have come up with, it, it blows my mind. Like it, I, I get so hyped up about, it. I get so into it. I was like, I if I record a session and I'll just watch the landing patterns, the, the, the jump patterns, the, the takeoff, the, the, sometimes they'll add a ball and catch a ball. It's like, there is no way I could ever physically program for that. I could, right. I, I could never, I could never come up with that. I could never come up with that. I'm going to take off. And now you, you look at a game of football, you look at a team sport activity and it's like, it's the same thing. The, the amount of different takeoffs, landings, falls, um, jumps, catches that it, yeah. it kind of blows your mind. Right. The other one that we do with the hula hoop and the medicine ball is it's a three person game. And the one person in the middle is designated as the hoop master and they hold the, the hula hoop vertically now instead of horizontally. And the other two players now throw the ball back and forth through the hoop, which initially it's really easy but now the hoop master starts to move around the field. And so the two players now have to make a good clean pass in between while the hoop is moving. And it's incredibly demanding because you have to run like crazy. You have to modulate how you do that throw and you have to honor the person on the other side. It's, it's really athletic, but it's fun as hell. 
<laughs> I was going to say then that's, that's another part that I think we can talk about a little bit is the amount of work you get done with your, with your athletes, with your clientele is crazy. And they'll finish smiling. Like they'll be gassed. They'll be absolutely destroyed with the amount of reps that they did, but it's not the same mental like fatigue that they would have if you had laid everything out for them, you know, cause they're playing, you know, they're getting the same physical, I would say even more of a physical benefit with, without feeling like they actually um, drained themselves. Cause that's where it's, I like that you mentioned in the book, it's like, if, if you, if you make it a scientific process, the workout, the scientific process, if you make it almost like dread, like you, you wonder why your athletes dread going to work out. You wonder why they dread to go to these performance sessions when, when like you set it up for them to dread it, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And another strategy, I think that you are going to love this one is if you present this strictly as play, you're going to have trouble selling the idea to other coaches or administrators or to the, even to the athletes themselves. So I prefer like a Trojan horse approach where you say, okay, we're going to do a workout and you dress it up in scientific language, but then the Trojan horse, the, the thing inside is the play. And then that's when you bring the play out and you don't even have to talk about play or the value of play, but you, you have it in there and you sneak it onto the field that way. It's uh, it's really fun. <laughs> And that, that point that you made, like the administrators and other coaches, because like you said, if you if you did bring it up in the way of, hey, we're just going to go, we're going to go do this stuff. The coaches would go out like they would be like, no, you're not like you're going to go work out like that's what we need you to do with our athletes. But like you, you dress it up a little bit and then they come and watch the session. That's the coolest thing. Like I've had coaches come and watch the session like, oh, my God, that is awesome. The energy you're getting like that is awesome. But like you said, if you had approached it in the way of hey, we're just going to, we're going to do it. Like we're just playing. You, you said they would laugh at you. They would fire you. They would, you know, you would never get anywhere. Yeah. It's, it's the military model, the military industrial model versus the hippie model on the other side of the, you know, of the country and they're, they're different cultures. And so we got to find a way for them to coexist. Um, one book that I think you would like, it's back from, I think the 1970s, called The Ultimate Athlete. Does that ring a bell? I haven't read it, no. Okay, it's this guy named George Leonard. And he was pretty famous at the time because he picked up the martial art Aikido when he was in his 60s, I believe. And back then, Aikido was a really obscure martial art. Nobody was training, really. And he picked it up, and he, he writes this book called The Ultimate Athlete. And it was sort of the hippie's guide to the body, you might say. And he made some excellent points about the handsome movement and and playful experience and that kind of thing. But uh, that was, you know, that was that culture. So. so every coach that I have brought on that is, if we want to say the hippie method, but has had a movement based idea of how to train athletes has come from a dance background, a climbing background or a martial arts background. Yeah. Why, why are those three disciplines? Why do they seem so completely different than the, the industrialized like basketball, American football, uh, track and field background? Why is there such a disconnect between the, those like three sports? Well, dance is so old. It's, it was really the original movement for humans after hunting and gathering. And dance was the very first movement specialty, you might say. And so it goes deep. It's, it's like if you were to run the whole human history over again, that's, that's what would come out is dance. And so we're, it seems like we're naturally wired for that. And then martial arts with a deep history, uh, a deep holistic culture, that's what makes that interesting whole person approach. And then climbing, skateboarding, surfing, all of these things have a culture, a playful youth-based culture around them where kids, young people, just made it up. You know, they, they made it up. They say, this is what is rad. This is what is cool. This is what constitutes a good move. And let's run with that. So that's what's so appealing about those arts. That's really interesting what's happened in the world of climbing because it used to be a fun youth-oriented pursuit, and it used to be um, a culture where achievement was important, but not everything. So 
they, they used to have a, a, a saying, the, the climber who has the most fun is the best climber. And now it's gone the other way. And now climbers are rigorous in their training and they're very serious and they're not playful at all. And they do these incredible feats, but it's all a bunch of work. So the, that culture has changed as well. And that's what we talk about. We talk a lot about like the, the missing link. And that's, that's something that I love about the, the playful approach and the creative approach of those other sports, the martial arts background, the, the dance background and old climbing background is like you said, it was, it was creative. Like with somebody, this skateboarding parkour is something I love watching now too, because it's who can, who can create the next cool movement, you know, like who can come up with something that isn't even created yet, who can grab from something and where we see like the deficiency in American football is, is that creative aspect of moves and schemes. And once you see it implemented and into the American football world, the, the spike in performance of that athlete, you, you see the athletes that are able to uh, Patrick Mahomes, like the quarterbacks that are able to do these creative uh, non or unorthodox movements. So you would never teach somebody to throw a football like that. You never teach somebody to move like Lamar Jackson. If you were teaching them in like the, the traditional method. And yet those are the athletes that are worshiped. You know, those are the athletes that are taking the complete step above. And that's where I really think, because I think a lot of people talk about like play. Yeah. Like long-term health. Yeah. But I also really think this is something that if you watch the athletes that are amazing, that are honestly next tier to other athletes, it's that they have unlocked that creative aspect into their, they, they are almost playing in this really regimented sport and, their performance is skyrocketing. Right. My favorite example on that is um, Steph Curry for the Golden State Warriors. And, you know, just unbelievably creative in his moves. And uh, to give an idea what the, the coaching aspect here, his coach, Steve Kerr, after, after one amazing game that Steph Curry on court, um, he kind of joked, well, the reason we won that game is because of good coaching. <laughs> and he said it in an ironic kind of way. He said, no, really, coaching had nothing to do with that. <laughs> and we, we talk about those kind of like, you, you mentioned earlier about the, the movers and learning, like learning movements. I, I haven't totally dove deep into the rabbit hole of the, the X's and O's behind it and the theory behind it. But how can we create better learners of movement then better almost players better people that are like picking up these movements and then implementing them what is is it just having them play and learn it themselves having them watch like how how do we create better learners of this movement better learners of this culture well i think you got to break things up and you know, my study of the nervous system is is really important here because it's all about habits and all about adaptation and neuroplasticity. I mean, that is, that's the key to all of this because with neuroplastic changes in the, in the nervous system, we develop these ruts, these grooves, and somehow we have to break out of those. And the people who are really good at this are musicians. And from my point of view, musicians and athletes are basically doing the same thing, except musicians are using small muscles and athletes are using big muscles. That's the only difference. And musicians are all over this because they know that they train, they practice the scales, their chords, and they develop habits. But if those habits become too deep, then they, they're in a rut and then they can't break out. So they're always trying to put themselves, um, imagine a, a mountain with a water course running down it and the, the water flowing into grooves and ruts and canyons and valleys like that. That's how the nervous system works. And good musicians are able to build those grooves in the right place and then abandon those grooves and, and go to a new place. And that's what we need with the athletes. We have to mix things up. And that's where play is really important. And then as a coach now, I'm going to take that. How do you as a coach do that? How do you, how do you personally as a coach make sure you're not in a rut in what you're doing and you're studying, maybe it's studying different fields, maybe it's reading different books that, because that's something I've noticed in my in my own study is the, the, uh, my ability to study like um, old history and other things has allowed me to make, you would think it has nothing to do with your field, but you're able to grab so much from another field and a different field of study to break you out of that rut. And then you come back into our field of expertise and quotations 
and apply things. So how do you, how do you personally do that to continue to make sure you're not in a rut? Well, sometimes you can force yourself just to do new things, you know, travel, you listen to different people, you read different books, whatever it is. Um, and sometimes it takes a crisis. I mean, so sometimes something has to break in your life and then now you're going to have to look at things from a new perspective. So, um, it, your relationship to ambiguity and your relationship to change is the most important thing there, I think. And being willing and kind of open to do it too. You know, that, that that's something that I feel like we don't want to, I, I, I feel like a lot of times we think we are our ideas, you know, like, and we can't, we have no plasticity to be able to change because we've sworn by that, that single idea or that single movement or this, this single barbell. And many times I feel like we're kind of, we kind of force ourselves into our rut because we're so emotionally attached to that idea. Right. And school is really bad for a lot of this because school is a place where you're supposed to generate right answers all the time. And by the time you're done with school, you think that there's a right answer for everything. And then you're in a rut because that's what you believe. And so somehow you got to break that, break that down. Well, that, that, that's why I talk about this so much, too, is because it was me. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't feel I, I feel like I say like other people. It, it was me graduating from college in the year after college of like you said, like I had the right answer. I thought I had the right answers. I thought there were right answers in the first place because that's what was beat into my head. And that's something I really like this podcast is bringing guys like yourself on to be able to show that there probably isn't, or there's a different perspective or there's something to dive a little bit deeper on there. I, I always bring up writing because when I was a kid, I would, I, the first time I got a computer, I just wrote, I was, I was a nerd. I read like all like fantasy novels and everything like that. And I started typing these fantasy novels and like writing about all of this, like just ideas and imagination. And then I got to school and we started doing writing classes and LA classes and all the way through college. And I hated writing in college and because it was like, there's a certain way to write. There's certain answers. I was like, man, this sucks. And the last, the last year I found writing again. And I found the ability to write in like my voice and the way that I want to do it. And it blows your mind that you, you go through all these years of this right answer and this right thing. And you're like, wow, that's, that's not it. That's not, that's not the way to go. Yeah. 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 That reminds me of um, one Hollywood screenwriter who has a lot to say about the writing process and it applies to sports equally because he says, artists want to be free. Artists want to just do whatever they want to do. But the coach comes in or the teacher comes in and says, well, there's limitations. We're going to impose some guardrails. We're going to say, here are some creative limitations. And you've got to stay within those guardrails. But within those guardrails, you can play as much as you want. So I think that's a really nice way to put it. Say, here's an extreme. Here's another extreme. Stay inside those extremes, but play as much as you want. And that works. Yeah, that uh, I just listened to a Jordan Peterson podcast where he mentioned the same exact thing. He's like, you need to find the balance between the left and right hemispheres, the the the, the cautious like approach and the, the the playful approach. And the playful approach will bring you to dangerous and like unknown territories that you need to go to be able, whether you're an artist or you're an athlete, to expose yourself to those. And the cautious side will bring you back right before you're about to get hurt, right before you're about to go somewhere you probably shouldn't. And it kind of keeps you on track. And kind of the, the whole point as a coach, he was saying, as a leader, it is to navigate the, the, the people that are following you through that pathway, like you said, through the guardrails and just making sure they're staying and bouncing back and not too narrow, but not too wide. Right, right. Yeah, that's a great way to think of it. And the other uh, concept that, that I really like, in the, in the world of education, there's a lot of argument about the value of freedom and discipline. And this argument has been raging for centuries. And everybody has some ideas about why their, their perspective is right on that. But there was a philosopher... Alfred North Whitehead, and he wrote a book about the rhythmic claims of freedom and discipline. He said, look, you don't have to resolve that argument. You don't have to have one winner. What you have to do is have a rhythm between freedom and discipline. And he called it, um, 
he said there were two phases of learning. You have the romance phase and the precision phase. And it's not that one is better than the other. It's that in a complete holistic education, you move smoothly from one to the next. So you're in the romance phase and now you're falling in love with your sport or your art or your, whatever it is. And then you go to the precision phase. And in the precision phase, there are right answers and there are wrong things and there are truths to be known in the in the precision phase. And then you go back to the romance phase. And that was such a beautiful insight for me. It was like, yeah, just keep the oscillation going and you're, you're going to be more likely to get it right eventually. Yeah, I think I highlighted that entire page on on your book when you wrote about it, too, because it, it makes so much sense because you're like now you when you go from the romance phase to the precision phase, the romance phase is almost like you have all these ideas, all these dreams, all these good things that get you interested. Now, the precision phase gets you a little bit closer to what you actually think. And, and then you expand back out to the romance phase. And but now you're just a little bit more directed and you have a little bit couple more answers like, wow, that is like that's my coaching uh career to a t like that explains right. it exactly like you, you, and you just have to keep that oscillation throughout it right i had a couple of professors in college who were really good at this because they started day one by sort of selling their discipline they said okay this is a class on astronomy and this is why it's the most interesting subject in the world and they would just talk about how much they loved it and then in the week two, week three, then you start to get into the nuts and bolts. And that was inspiring. That's the way to do it. And before we get to the rapid fire rounds of uh, this podcast, I have a, I'm interested if you've had any eye openers since you've written the book, uh, Exuberant Animal, that I've read or anything that you've changed your mind on or even just dove deeper on and thought more of since the book. Right. Well, for me... It just keeps getting back to the state of the planet, the state of the earth, the state of the biosphere. I, I've become really passionate about this because for me, if you start asking about athletic performance and then you start asking about health, all of that ties back into the planet. All of that ties back into habitat, because if you don't have a functioning habitat, you're not going to have a functioning body. You're not going to have a functioning athlete. So for me, all of these questions have to tie in. They have to be relevant to the state of the planet. I read this one woman, uh, Naomi Klein, and she puts it this way. She says, when your life support system is threatened, all other problems fit inside that problem. In other words, the state of the biosphere, that's the alpha issue of the day. And so what I'm looking for as, as a movement teacher, a body person, is like, how can I connect my body to habitat? How can I make my training relevant to the big challenges of the day? And that's, that's what really turns me on right now. It's like, if we could do that, then we're really doing something. And that's, by the way, where I, I look to athletes now to take a leadership role. And some of some athletes are doing that in the world of like social justice. We see people like LeBron James speaking out about social justice. And, and that's great. But, but we need to do more as athletes. I think we, uh, we can speak out. So. I like it. I love it. All right. Let's transition to the rapid fire rounds. Um, and you've recommended a couple books uh, so far, but what are kind of your, your favorite books that you think you'd recommend to the, uh, the listeners? Well, we talked about the Paleolithic prescription. It's no longer in print, but uh, it's excellent if you're interested in uh, the paleo perspective on the body. Um, I would say anything about neuroplasticity. And the one that I like is called The Plastic Mind by Sharon Begley. And that's just, a, it's kind of an overview of everything about neuroplasticity. I would suggest this one here called free to learn by peter gray and this he's a big advocate for for play-based education he calls it minimally invasive education which i like um another writer i like on education is alfie cohn k-o-h-n and he's got one called punished by rewards which is fantastic it's all about um how we kind of hijack human motivation by putting too many rewards and gold stars and grades and perks and all this stuff on things that people would probably naturally do on their own. 
<laughs> and we mentioned The Ultimate Athlete and Whitehead's book, uh, The Aims of Education. My Amazon card is going to be filled up after this uh, <laughs> after this podcast. You uh, you mentioned before the podcast that you uh, you have a new book coming out. When when will that be done? When can people look for that? Oh, that'll be that'll be out in the spring. And it's, it's called Beware False Tigers. Okay. And false tigers are things that stress us out that really aren't that dangerous. All right. Next question: Who's a guest that you think we should have on? You you mentioned a couple at the beginning again, but um, do you think can bring us into some of these rabbit holes? Oh, I, I think. Uh, one that would be fantastic would be the NBA star Bill Walton, who's retired. Uh, he's been retired for some time, but he was he was a guy who really navigated this hippie athlete in the mainstream world kind of thing. And you know, he was a big Grateful Dead guy, and he but he excelled in the NBA. And he has a really interesting take because he was injured a lot. I mean, he had a lot of surgeries, but he loved the game. And he would be fantastic if you could get him. Boom. Next question. What's kind of next for you? Maybe it's within the next year. Maybe it's maybe it is the book, but what's kind of your next big goal you're looking to accomplish? Well, the book for sure, uh, talking about stress and I would like to, you know, if this pandemic passes, I would like to set up more workshops and teach more of this play-based stuff. Um, it's very exciting. And I found a way to, I've got slideshows of all sorts of content around this. And we, we do an oscillation between slideshow content and movement and it works really well. So that would and be if, a fun way to go back. If people want to check out those, um, um, those seminars, where how, how, do, how do they kind of check it out? Is there a website? Well, go to, to exuberantanimal.com. That would be a good place. Or you could go to sapiens.earth. And that's my other website. People could uh, get a hold of me there. Boom. All right. When all this uh, coaching and movement-based stuff and all the seminars are over, what do you kind of want your legacy to be with this? Oh. <sighs> well... I, I guess I was a little bit ahead of the curve on some of this paleo stuff. And I guess I, I'm kind of known right now as somebody who identified some of these connections early on. And that, that, that would be a good legacy. Yeah. And the last, last question of the podcast, um, kind of your, your, your billboard message for somebody that maybe is in a valley or maybe uh, kind of in that rut that you mentioned, what, what's kind of your billboard message for them, the elevator talk? Try something new. Forget what you know. <laughs> Be a beginner again. And this is your martial art tradition. Beginner's mind. Try something new. Oh, that's an awesome way to end it, Coach. Thanks for being on. This was awesome. Good, good. Well, super happy to join you. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.